You kids today, with your shelves full of books about improvisation, the history of it, the origins of it, the how to do of it. Back in my day, there was one book, Something Wonderful Right Away by Jeffrey Sweet, and it is still arguably the finest or one of the finest books about improvisation ever written. And it's uh, equally wonderful author Jeffrey Sweet is here to talk to us about it today. Is that, was that a wonderful enough introduction, Jeff? That, 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 was, that was something pretty wonderful, yeah, thank you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, now in its 15th year, number 743, Something Wonderful Now. Jeffrey Sweet's Something Wonderful Right Away, An Oral History of the Compass Players and Second City, was first published in 1978, and it's arguably still one of the definitive works about the rise of Chicago improvisation and maybe the defining actor training method of the second half of the 20th century. It's also the book that helped motivate my wife, Dee Ryan, to move to Chicago in 1991 to begin training with and ultimately writing shows and performing at Second City. Dee now teaches improvisation for writers at Northwestern University, and she joined me in this conversation with Jeffrey Sweet about something wonderful right away, and Jeff started our conversation by explaining his Chicago roots. I am a Chicago boy, but I wasn't born in Chicago. I was born in Boston, and my family moved around a little bit before we settled in Chicago. Uh, I ended up in the Chicago area in time for hmm, maybe the first or second grade was in Glen Ellen for a year or two, and then we moved to Evanston. So I was in Evanston from, uh, I'm guessing about third grade through high school. And that's still, when you say the word home, that's still what resonates to me. Even though I've been in New York since 67, um, uh, to me, uh, you say you say home and uh, I, you know, it's, it's the lakefront, it's Northwestern, it's uh, the movie theaters that I went to that are now all closed. It's <laughs> yep. all of that. Yeah. What? What was the impetus to write this book? Did you go to Second City uh, when you were a kid? I went to some Second City when I was a kid, but really it uh, it happened because uh, uh, in '67 uh, I went to New York to study film at NYU. You're looking at somebody who got a B from Martin Scorsese. <laughs> Congratulations! I, I, I wasn't good enough to to be noticed, and I wasn't bad enough to be noticed. B is like that invisible grade, you know. <laughs> but but I was going to I was going to NYU, and I was uh, studying uh, film, and I was studying uh, uh, critical writing, and I was studying musical theater writing, and I was right in the middle of everything I wanted to to be in the middle of. Um, and I just started noticing uh, that there were certain works that spoke to me. Obviously, The Graduate was one of those. And then, you know, when A New Leaf came out, uh, I'd long ago lost my heart to Barbara Harris for when she was in uh, uh, A Thousand Clowns. I was a big Jules Pfeiffer fan, and Pfeiffer's uh, plays were getting done off-Broadway, directed by somebody named Alan Arkin. And uh, uh, there was something about these people. And I thought, where did they come from? Oh, God, look at this. They came from the town that I just fled. Uh, all right. Well, I want to. There must be something that they have in common, which is uh, which makes them to be speaking my language. Oh, they all came out of improv in Chicago. Oh, I want to read a book about that. What? Nobody's written it. Oh, okay. I'm young and stupid. I'll write it. 
<laughs> so it was a passion project and also filling a niche in the market. Yeah, it's it's just I had the theory that there was something that that, that uh, they all had in common that they'd gotten out of improv and out of Compass or Second City, and I was uh, kind of determined to to find that. I had stumbled into doing interviews. Uh, actually, I had pulled kind of a con job because there was somebody I wanted to talk to, and I thought, well, he wouldn't talk to me unless I told him I was going to interview him, a playwright named Lanford Wilson. So uh, I went up to him. I said, I want to interview you. And he was too stupid to ask for whom because I didn't have anybody to interview him for. <laughs> I just wanted to talk to him. And uh, I interviewed him. And I said, luck would happen. He had a play open off off Broadway called Hot El Baltimore, which uh, was a big hit. And I called up Newsday and I said, you don't have to send anybody to interview Lanford Wilson. I've already done it. And they laughed. They said, well, let's take a look at it. And so I sent it in. They said, okay, we're running it. You want to interview more people? I said, sure. How'd you like to interview Richard Rogers? Yeah, I kind of like to do that. How'd you like to interview Cook and Moore? Yeah, I kind of like to do that. And so <laughs> I, I had stumbled by fraud into this uh, sideline of interviewing people. And then, you know, when it, uh, and one of the people I interviewed uh, in those days was Jules Pfeiffer. And uh, so when I had the idea of doing the Second City book, I knew Pfeiffer knew most of these people. And, um, um, Jules said, I'll introduce you, but there's somebody you should meet before you meet uh, Arkin and before you meet Mike Nichols, you should meet a guy named Sheldon Patinkin because he's um, uh, he's going to provide the frame. He's going to give you the context within which uh, everybody else will fit. I was young. I was like uh, at that point. Well, it, it, that that was 1976 when those tapes were recorded. So I was 26 at that point. And, and the book was going to come out uh, uh, in 78. So I was almost finished with the book. And in fact, towards the end of the book, uh, in the epilogue, you'll see the, the epilogue uh, talks about those evenings that are on the tape. And uh, I, the format of it is so wonderful, uh, to use a word. Uh, it's an oral history. You're so, sort of not really imposing your own, uh, I, I suppose, critical theories on it. You're interviewing and letting these, you know, these originators of this form uh, speak for themselves and tell the history in their own words, which I find fascinating. Well, of course, that's partially, uh, you know, a nod to Studs Terkel because he had popularized oral histories. Um, although all the words they say are theirs, those th those things were placed into real order. I, what I did is I, I interviewed them, I transcribed them, and then I, this is before word processing, all right? Yes, I'm, I'm marveling. Okay, I Xeroxed the transcripts, and then with scissors, I cut different paragraphs, and then on the floor, I put the paragraphs into different orders so that the, each, each chapter would have a build. So that's not literally word for word in, you know, a transcript of what of the conversations. It's the build I made. And occasionally I would say, oh, I need a transition here. And I would call them up and say uh, and, and ask for additional material so that I could make the transition. So although they said everything they said in the book, it was not said in the order in which they said it, because, you know, it, it's it's nice to give people a sense of, uh, of drama or build in, in, a, um, in a chapter. What did it reveal to you about, what did talking to all these folks reveal to you about this thing that you found so attractive in the works of Alan Arkin and Barbara Harris and, and those folks? Um, that uh, the reality was shared, that what they came up with was stuff that, that uh, they couldn't do individually, but uh, by playing together and finding agreement, they found something that they could not have uh, gotten to on their own. And this idea of creating a shared reality, and also big fan of the idea of transformation in theater. You know, there's, this was a very poor theater in the sense of, you know, nobody had any money. 
So when you don't have very much money, you have to depend on the uh, uh, on the imagination of the audience. I mean, the original Second City stage was so broke, they only had one entrance to the stage. <laughs> you know, there was only one way to get onto the bloody stage, which is, you know, e even conventionally broke theaters have at least two ways of getting onto the stage. <laughs> So you know they, everything that they did was built out of uh, built out of imagination and chairs and uh, and uh, and stuff that they could uh, 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 grab easily that, that was cheap. So this idea of an ensemble doing very cheap theater seems to be in the DNA of Chicago theater, uh, and also you know in the DNA of um, I got to New York in time to see uh, the beginning of the off off Broadway movement and to participate a little bit. Uh, I think that poverty is imagination's friend, and um, I, I think that uh, Chicago theater flourished in part because of uh, because of poverty. Uh, because at those, in those days, it was still relatively cheap to live in Chicago. Uh, relative New York to New York, Chicago is still way cheaper than living, and uh, uh, it is still way cheaper to live. And um, also, if you're not paying people money. The, uh, the way you can pay them is by giving them something that they want to do, which means that you're going to sort of not do star projects. You're going to do ensemble projects because that's the way people get paid is by, you know, stage time and the sense of, uh, of shared ownership in the project. So I think that has a lot to do with why uh, Chicago uh, um, is a home of a lot of ensembles in a sense in that sense of community. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of what I, uh, the other thing is, you know, I was primarily and still consider myself primarily to be a playwright. But when I, uh, I, I, this is the way I thought theater went. Somebody of talent, perhaps a genius, <laughs> sat, sat down and, you know, wrote something up and you had a script. And then everything was devoted to realizing the potential of that script. I thought this way because I was, you know, writing scripts. And then I had a conversation with Paul Sills and very quickly he made me realize that there were only two essential elements to the theater, actors and audience. It won't necessarily be great theater, but it will be theater. You have to have those two things to make some kind of theater. And I thought, well, if those are the two essential elements, then it follows that every other discipline in the theater is an extension of those two functions. And I went, oh, playwriting is an extension of acting. I'm not the most important thing in the theater. I'm here to serve the actors. And it made a difference. I started writing differently, and that's when I started getting produced. Hi, I'm Susie Nakamura, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company Podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? Right now, the only place to see the remote Shakespeare Company is online. We've created a brand new page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, and a playlist on our YouTube page where right this second you can watch us perform many of our epic abridgments from the comfort of your own shelter. You can also grab your own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. And now back to my conversation with Jeffrey Sweet about his seminal work, Something Wonderful, right away. One of the things I really don't like is there are a lot of uh, universities where playwriting is is taught in the uh, in the uh, English department or the literature department. Playwriting's not literature. Uh, a play isn't literature. I mean, there are some plays that, you, that that 
that transcend being plays and can be read as literature. There's Shakespeare and Euripides and Moliere, and you've run out of uh, the list. Uh, <laughs> literature is what you make a direct, uh, you make direct con uh, connection with the words that somebody has put on a page. The reader makes direct connection with the words. Playwriting is about creating the opportunity for actors to create compelling behavior. And only part of that behavior is language. It happens to be the part that you can put, a, put down on the page. But it's possible to write a great part without great language. Uh, Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker, the entire spoken part is wah-wah, wah-wah. Yeah. Can't tell you how long it took you, uh, me to memorize that. Um, and, uh, you know, the mute daughter in Mother Courage. So the quality of a part is not necessarily related to the quality of the language in a part. It's a, uh, the, the quality of the behavior. Well, you know, I would like to say, just stick in here in, um, is that Michael McCarthy was hired by Joyce Sloan to, to um, type up all the scenes that had been done at Second City yeah. from old videos, or at the time, I think there were new videos. <laughs> um, and he was just out of college and he put nothing in them. It's just the words people said. So yeah. when you get in touring company, you go on tour and you do those scenes. And I remember we would read scenes and we'd be just like, this isn't funny. No. Like, that's not funny. No, because it was the, like you say, it was the behavior of the actors performing him that made those scenes work. And that's true in Shakespeare too. You read some of this language, you go, what the hell does this mean? Well, it probably corresponds to a bit or to behavior or to cover somebody's entrance or exit. You yeah. know, it has a theatrical meaning apart from the words. That's one of the reasons why I always thought that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. It's filled with actors' tricks. I'm sorry, some lord sitting in his bloody castle is not going to know these tricks. You know, 100%. Actors, actors know these tricks. So, um, so that it, it changed me as a, a, all my ideas about theater. It changed me as a playwright. I, I started realizing, oh, my job is to make actors look good. Right, right. make an actor look good, and he will he'll do anything for you. <laughs> it's it, it's been a, it's been a lovely and exciting time. But yeah, no, the, I, but I realized how much how how much of a kid i was you know mark harris's biography of mike nichols has just come out yeah, and, and d and i keep going well where's the good biography of elaine may and i'm looking through your contents and i don't i see you didn't you weren't able to speak to her she wouldn't she wouldn't talk to me uh she she did talk to mark harris and i congratulated him for that but she uh no uh, at, at one point i'll tell you a story you know, Mark and Bobby Gordon were a couple that were in the compass, and they also remained very close friends of mine. After after the book came out, I started a group of uh, of uh, playwrights, actors, and directors that met for eleven years, and among the members were Mark and Bobby Gordon, and uh, Stiller and Mirror were members, and uh, and uh, also uh, Donald Margulies and Jane Anderson, who got started in my group and then went on to win Pulitzer Prizes and Writers Guild. It was a great group. So anyway, um, when Bobby died. Uh, I organized a memorial at New Dramatis, and uh, uh, Mike Nichols showed up, and Elaine showed up, and Stiller and Mira, and a lot of other people showed up. And people got up and uh, talked about how how wonderful Bobby had been in this group of ours called uh, uh, the New York Writers Block. So people got up and talked about the Writers Block, you know, and how wonderful it had been, and how how wonderful she'd been in it. And then whenever they did that, they sort of nodded in my direction. And after the memorial, Elaine comes up to me and said, this writer's block sounds fabulous. Is it still going? I said, no, it's, uh, we, we, you know, we, we lasted 11 years and then people got successful and moved to LA and, you know, had lives. She says, well, if you ever get to start it again, I'd really be interested in joining it. What's 
what, what's your name again? And I said, Elaine, it, it's, it's Jeff Sweet. And she said, oh, I tried to sabotage your book, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yes, Elaine, you did. Oh. <laughs> and, we're, and we're talking about the origins of Second City and, and, and improv in America, and yet you bring up the name Sheldon Patinkin, and I interviewed Mark Larson about his book, Ensemble, yeah. about the ensemble nature of Chicago theater. And Sheldon Pintinkin's name is threaded throughout that book because his influence was not just on generations of comedians, but on generations of, of theater makers across the board. And on me. Yeah. Uh, when I, when uh, uh, Jules Pfeiffer said that I had to talk to Sheldon first, uh, Sheldon, you know, he passed the word along. Sheldon called me up and he says, uh, Jules says that you want to write a book about Second City. I said, yeah. He says, yeah. Have you ever improvised? I said, no. And he says, uh, no. I said, what? He says, no, you can't write a book about Second City. If you've never improvised, what the fuck are you going to talk about? How are you going to ask people anything? And he must have heard my lower lip quivering over the phone. <laughs> and he says, all right. He says, this was when he was in New York for a little while. He says, I'm starting a, I'm starting a workshop and you're going to come to the workshop. I said, oh, you're going to let me audit? He says, no, you're going to get up and do it. Audit, Jesus Christ. You're going to come out. You're going to get up and do it. And so I, I went and, and, and did it. In fact, one of my, uh, one of my um, uh, classmates was, oh, come on now. I'm suddenly, Adam Arkin was one of my classmates. Sure. And, um, and you know, it's, that's where I learned about objectives. That's where I learned about, you know, negotiating over objects. I mean, the foundation of a lot of what I later use theoretically and a lot of what I teach is playwriting is based on extrapolating from improv uh, uh, theory to playwriting theory. And I do mean, you think I, that getting on your so getting on your feet and actually doing it helped your writing for other actors who have to get? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, I've been a professional actor when I was a kid in Chicago anyway. So I knew I sort of knew some of this stuff. But I, Sheldon was the one who sort of turned on the light and made me go. Oh, there's a consistent theory here. You know, for for a book that's had sort of a continuing influence, you would be surprised how little money it's. <laughs> <laughs> well, as as the author of a recent book myself, I, I'm not tragically surprised. No, you don't. If if, if you write a book to make money, uh, um, on the other hand, it's 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 uh, something that, uh, that that changed my life and it introduced me to a community of people, and uh, all my work in Chicago in Chicago theater came out of doing the book. And getting back to what you were saying too about the, those lengthy, rich scenes at Second City, you know, you, your book isn't called something hysterical right away. You're no. not, it's not even called something funny right away. It's called something wonderful. It doesn't necessarily, as you, you know. say, promise. But that, but that but that comes from the interview with Paul Sand. When I, when I, when, when uh, Sand would get notes from, from uh, Paul Sills when they were doing story theater. And I said, what, what were Sills' notes like? And he says, well, okay, a typical Paul Sills note was, um, okay, in this section, please be wonderful. I said, that was his note? He said, yeah, I want something wonderful right away. And I said, okay, that's the title of the book. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Send us your seminal work via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com. You can also find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener, and you can follow Jeffrey Sweet on Twitter too at JWSweet. 
Thanks, as always, to Yes Ander Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Stacy McCurdy. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Second City alum Susie Nakamura from TV's The West Wing, Veep, and Avenue 5. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. Please stay safe, stay home, and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 743 2229ths of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Well, here is to the day that we can do this again over drinks. Or under drinks. <laughs> this podcast is a production of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to reduce for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.